This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. It's Friday, and that means it's time to take a look back at the last seven days and the top local stories that you should know but might have missed. The Supreme Court agreed to hear a case involving a former president. The justices have agreed to decide whether former President Trump is entitled to immunity. Chicago is addressing a homelessness crisis in its transit system. CTA leaders cite COVID-19 with driving a spike in the number of people sheltering on trains. And voters may still see Bring Chicago Home on the ballot. But Friday, a judge ruled the so-called Bring Chicago Home referendum invalid. Our panel this week includes Christian Farr, a reporter for NBC5 Chicago, Nick Blumberg, a correspondent for WTTW News, and Mitch Armentrout, government and politics reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Nick gets us started with the latest on the March 19th primary election. A Cook County judge has ordered that Donald Trump be removed from the ballot. But there's more to it. That's right. A Cook County judge, Tracy Porter, made Illinois the third state, in addition to Colorado and Maine, to rule that Donald Trump is ineligible to appear on our primary ballot. This is under the 14th Amendment, which I think we've all learned a lot more about than we maybe ever (laughs) expected to. uh, Finding that, you know, she ruled that Colorado's argument was compelling, that uh, Donald Trump was involved in attempts uh, at insurrection, Mm -hmm. at overthrowing the government. Now, she immediately put that ruling on hold. So that is... Why'd she do that? Well, she wanted to give uh, Trump's attorneys an opportunity to appeal or for the Supreme Court to rule on this because obviously they heard arguments a few weeks ago about the merits of the Colorado case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump's legal team, you know, pretty quickly came out and said on Wednesday they're going to appeal. And in fact, they have filed that appeal asking for that to be overturned. I see. How did Illinois Republicans react to the ruling? I think, as you can imagine, they said that this was, you know, a, a judge stepping outside the bounds of authority. You know, they immediately labeled Judge Porter as as a Democrat, as someone who is doing this for political reasons versus for constitutional reasons. Uh, you'll remember, you know, last month, or I guess it's not last month anymore, it's March now, uh, in January, the State Board of Elections kind of punted on this decision. They said this was a decision for a judge to make, um, mm-hmm. but the judge pretty immediately came under fire from, you know, Republican leaders at the statewide level on down who said this is a matter for voters to decide, not for the courts to decide. Yeah, former gubernatorial candidate Darren Bailey said, on X, which is formerly known as Twitter, he wrote, quote, our fight to keep President Trump on the ballot is just beginning. Remind us who brought this challenge to Trump being on the ballot in Illinois in the first place. Well, there have been a number of organizations involved in this, uh, but there's a nonprofit group that's been pushing a back against uh, Trump's candidacy, both in Illinois and in other states. Mm -hmm. You know, they had some local legal firepower. uh, Ed Mullen, who's a well-known election attorney in town, who's actually also involved in the Bring Chicago Home case. Um, So they brought it on behalf 
of Illinois voters. But this is a pretty coordinated effort that you're seeing uh, to try and block Trump's presence on the ballot. Yeah. And Christian and, and Mitch, right, we know the Supreme Court still hasn't ruled on a similar effort to remove Trump from the ballot in Colorado. How do you think that decision might impact this one in Illinois? I don't know. This thing really just blows my mind a little bit because at this point, I mean, I don't know, personal feelings. I mean, Trump hasn't been convicted of anything. Not that I'm a fan of uh, President Trump, but I'm just wondering what the next steps are going to end up being in this mm -hmm. because we still have some time until that election is going to happen and a lot of stuff can happen. I mean, we still have this criminal case that is out there right now. So it, it just, I th this is just a head-scratching thing for me, yeah. um, wondering how this is all going to end up when it comes election day. Yeah, I mean, yesterday the Supreme Court also agreed to decide whether Donald Trump should be immune from prosecution. So any thoughts, Mitch, on, on maybe what impact this ruling might have on, on that election? I feel like this decision in Cook County, it almost feels like the judge is acknowledging that, you know, it's a long shot that this actually goes through. In arguments before the Supreme Court a couple weeks back, by all accounts, I mean, the judges all seem, even the liberal justices on the, the high court seem to be skeptical that Mr. Trump could be knocked off the ballot. And I think that this Cook County judge seems to be acknowledging that by, you know, withholding her order through at least the end of this week. So I feel like long term he stays on the ballot. But again, twists and turns. Who knows? Twists and turns. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, the, the attorneys that have brought this case trying to knock, uh, you know, former President Trump off the ballot have said, even if the Supreme Court, you know, finds against Colorado's rationale, they said there's also state law at play. So it'll go to the Illinois Supreme Court. They, you know, they seem like they're willing to fight this out to the bitter end. But, you know, I find it hard to envision a circumstance where the Supreme Court rules against this, you know, Colorado move to boot him mm -hmm. off the ballot and he somehow stays off the ballot in Illinois. I mean, yeah. I think they're going to exhaust their legal options, but at a certain point, yeah. you know, it strikes me as unlikely. I'm with you on that too. So Mitch, uh, there is still a lot of confusion over the Bring Chicago Home ballot measure. I want you to walk us through what's been happening over the last week and, and maybe begin with an explainer on this referendum and the judge's decision last Friday. Just confusion up and down this primary <laughs> ballot. <huh? laughs> um, so Bring Chicago Home is uh, one of Mayor Brandon Johnson's, uh, really the key cornerstones of his platform coming into office. Basically this initiative, uh, which is on the, you know, in theory should be on the ballot or was approved to be on the, the primary ballot, asking Chicago voters whether we should raise the transfer tax for high-end uh, real estate uh, properties. Um, right now that tax is around 0.3%. And what Mayor Johnson wants to do is to uh, triple that for on transactions of properties over a million dollars and quadruple that tax for properties more than 1.5 million and to use that money to help combat homelessness across Chicago. The city council approved putting this referenda item on the ballot but just last week, a Cook County judge blocked that from happening, although obviously early ballots have already been printed mm -hmm. uh, for the most part. But so basically, people are still voting on it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, you know, I got my mail ballot uh, last week and, you know, reading through that item itself, it does get a little bit confusing, which was the argument of folks in the real estate industry who uh, are really fighting this item tooth and nail. Because right, they, they filed this lawsuit to begin with, right? Correct, because this tax would really cut into their bottom line. And the judge didn't really give any specific uh, opinion on, you know, why she's blocked this item, at least temporarily. But basically the argument from the real estate side of this is that the referendum item kind of conflates a transfer tax increase with a decrease, which is what the proposal is to do for transactions below a million dollars. So 
you know, even as I explain it, trying to keep all these numbers together gets a little <laughs> challenging. So right now, everyone's basically in a wait and see mode. The yeah. Chicago Board of Elections has appealed that Cook County judge's decision. In theory, you know, a, a higher court could make sure that those votes are counted yeah. down the line. So for now, this question remains on the ballot. Correct. It's going to be there at this point. Um, if the, the judge's decision holds, they won't be counted. But again, a higher court could step in and make sure those votes do end up being counted, which is what proponents of uh, Bring Chicago Home are really trying to hammer home with voters to just keep on voting for it. Christian and, and Nick, have you been keeping up with the back and forth here? <laughs> I, I've certainly found it uh, very interesting to try and parse these different arguments. Of right. this, is this a single question ballot proposition or does this improperly contain more than one question? You know, not having, you know, the election law expertise here, I don't think I'm qualified to weigh in. But, you know, it's interesting to me, was this, you know, if it is, in fact, something where they put on two questions when you're really only supposed to have one at a time, mm -hmm. is that just sloppy election lawyering? Is this some sort of an effort to try and push the bounds of state election law a little bit and say, well, we can do these two things in one fell swoop and it's a single issue? Yeah. So I'm very curious to see how that plays out and whether this is something that ends up, you know, setting some sort of precedent in state right. election law. And we know the bottom line here of Bring Chicago Home is to combat homelessness in the city. And so while we wait to see what happens next with that, Nick, you've been reporting on the homelessness on the CTA and how the city's trying to reach people who are experiencing this. What have you learned? That's right. You know, we did a you know, pretty in-depth in report along with our folks at Blog Club Chicago. The, the CTA back in late 2022 uh, put $2 million toward an outreach program. They contracted with the Department of Family and Sports Services um, and then they pulled in Haymarket and Thresholds which are long-running, uh, you know, nonprofit groups that do a lot of outreach. So they have teams out every day on the red and the blue line trying to work with folks who are using the CTA as a shelter of last resort. Obviously, folks Folks sheltering on the CTA system is not a, a new issue, but it's something that agency leaders really saw, you know, an increase in in the last few years because of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, so they're out there. It's really tough work. I mean, you know, we spoke with yeah. the folks that are, you know, doing this outreach. A lot of times people may not want to engage with them. It may take 5, mm. 10, 15 interactions before they can have a breakthrough with a client. You know, some of these are, are smaller scale interactions. Here's some food. Here's a thermal. You know, here's my card if you're interested in looking for shelter space. But they have been able to place some folks in shelter and even in permanent housing the numbers of folks placed are, are relatively small. Um, but, mm. you know, a lot of that is because the outreach work is really tough. And a lot of that is because we don't have adequate shelter and right. affordable housing space. Yeah. So they've been We've putting, seen this before. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are things that are outside of the CTA's traditional expertise, and a lot of it is outside of their control. You know, the CTA cannot create the shelter beds that are needed, but it's interesting seeing them put, you know, now they've done $2 million annually uh, the last couple of years toward this effort, and they say this is something that they want to continue with. Speaking of housing, Christian, you covered a, a controversy that had to do with housing and discrimination in Evanston. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, it had to do with not just uh, housing discrimination in Evanston, but also had to do with artificial intelligence, which is, you know, the new headline um, across. What's uh, AI doing now? Well, 
You know, um, there is a law out there that you cannot use a source of income to prevent a person from getting a home uh, here in the state of Illinois. And what a real estate agency was doing um, in Virginia that owns about 60,000 units, it was using artificial intelligence bots to um, basically just deny housing to those who had vouchers. And so it was just a blanket denial, and you cannot do that. There has to be a discussion beforehand to figure out how they can possibly get them housing. But people would go in, interact with these AI bots, and then it would just basically highlight the word voucher and say, no, we can't give you housing. Mm -hmm. um, so Open Communities, which is a fair housing program in Evanston, fought against this, filed a federal lawsuit against the housing agency and also the company that handled the AI bots. And what ended up happening was that there was a settlement that housing agency said that we are going to work with you guys to help and provide housing for those who have vouchers. We're no longer going to use these bots in this way. But it doesn't answer the question whether this housing agency actually was using the bots to prevent people with vouchers or was that just, you know, a part of their process to make it easier for them to answer questions about housing to people. They're just trying to prevent this from happening in the future because AI, of course, is the big thing right now. You know, does it take away jobs? It's affected our industry, especially mm -hmm. with the SAG after strike that sure happened. Has. So, um, you know, we're just wondering what the future of this is going to be because companies can use this to uh, save more money and make more money and leave some people out in the cold. I mean, yeah, those AI chatbots are everywhere on every website you go on these days. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot different if you're trying to track a FedEx package versus trying to find a house. That is, <laughs> that is true. That is a great point, Nick. <laughs> a FedEx package is fine. Yeah. <laughs>On to what feels like stadium hunger games. It started with the Bears, then Jerry Reinsdorf stepped up to the plate for the White Sox. Now Laura Ricketts is making her pitch for a new stadium for the Chicago Red Stars women's soccer team. Mitch, give us the play-by-play. -play. You know, it, it's funny how these things just go from zero to 60. Um, <laughs> I feel like, at least in recent years, in other parts of the country where teams, you know, this idea of public finance for stadiums, it's kind of fallen out of political vogue for a long time. But now once sort of that box was open here in Chicago, everybody kind of stepped up in line and is trying to get a piece of the action. Obviously, the Bears bought land in Arlington Heights a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. We're so looking at the Arlington Heights Bears, potentially. <laughs> exactly. And, and that, <laughs> that plan's kind of stalled. Um, and, you know, heading into a session in Springfield, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, decided this was kind of the time to really go hard for a stadium in the South Loop, which is reportedly something he's coveted for a while. Of course, that means all the other teams want to get on it, too. Uh, the Cubs are looking for some money from the city to upgrade some of their security infrastructure outside Wrigley Field. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the Red Stars. Yeah, like where do said. they want to go? I don't know that they've picked a specific site yet that I've seen, but hey, as long as anyone else is asking, make sure you, you can get it while you can. Well, they just want to leave Bridgeview, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just want to get out of where yeah. they are. It's not yeah. a bad place, but I mean, you know, when you're a sports team, a professional sports team, you want to be in the city that, you know, bears your name. So right. I think that's, you know, yeah. sort of the question. Yeah, I think yeah. that makes a lot of sense, Christian. Now, there's one very important person here who is um, throwing cold water on all the stadium excitement. Talking about Governor J.B. Pritzker. Now, here he is on Monday. This is when he was speaking at an event that's celebrating the opening of the state's only black-owned birthing center. That's a separate project that received funding from the state. The taxpayers' dollars are uh, precious. And the idea of taking taxpayer dollars and subsidizing the building of a stadium uh, as opposed to, for example, subsidizing the building of a birthing center, just to give the example, um, does not seem like the, you know, uh, the stadium ought to have higher priority. 
What do you think, Nick? Well, I think if the Governor Pritzker is coming out this strongly and, you know, comparing things like, where's the priority? Where do we want to be putting our money, particularly, you know, in a year where the state is looking at a potential budget gap, is looking at having to tighten its belt, as it were. So, yeah. I, I, and especially because this, you know, this news about the Sox Stadium going to the 78, it, it seemed like it came out so quickly, you know, to both of your points, that this was just sort of a, a, an avalanche of information. And all of a sudden there were renderings and there were plans. So right. clearly this wasn't something. And he was in Springfield and right. asking for money. Yeah, this wasn't was like, something that just kind of happened overnight. Right. So, the, you know, it almost seems as though either Governor Pritzker hadn't been clued in earlier on in the process or he had been and really hadn't given it his blessing and they decided to go public with it anyhow. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, the governor's political influence and I think the governor's money that he gives to Democratic lawmakers up and down the state is going to make it difficult for them to buck him if he says this isn't the way we should be spending our taxpayer cash. Who do you think, Christian? Can, can these stadium plans move forward without Pritzker's support? I don't know. You know, I, I long time ago, uh, I worked in Philadelphia and right when they had a stadium issue that was going on and it was a multi-purpose stadium and both the Philadelphia Phillies and the Eagles uh, played in the same exact stadium and they wanted new stadiums. They wanted full control of those stadiums and it became a really big political issue on where these stadiums were going to end up. They actually ended up exactly in the same place where their old stadium was, but in different spots. Mm. Um, so I've seen this political issue happen before, but you know, where this is all going to end up, I just don't know because they want help, but then they're going to take all that revenue, <laughs> you know? And then you've got the whole question about, can we build a bigger Chicago Bears stadium? Because they really want to host a Super Bowl. You want to host a Super Bowl. Yeah. You want to have a dome. You've got Kevin Warren here who came from Minnesota, who was able to put a dome there. They can host Super Bowls in Minnesota where it's much colder and they know how to deal with snow much better than <laughs> we do. Um, because they come down here when we get snow on top of our roofs and, and charge us a whole lot of money to get it off. But, <laughs> Um, I wonder in the end what's really going to happen. Are we yeah. actually going to have the Bears in a completely different city with the name Chicago, but they're in Arlington Heights or in another part where, you know, Aurora was trying to get them. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's trying to get them. And now you got the, the White Sox in this, and now you got the Red Stars and the Cubs, and somebody else is going to come asking Listen, for Listen, I money. said it before, stadium hunger games. Yeah. <laughs> that was and, real. And we've got an immigration and homeless problem yeah, in right. the city. As this is happening, Senate President Don Harmon also seemed to call a timeout on this stadium madness. He said he didn't want to quote referee fights between billion dollar sports franchises. And, but he also had another game changing idea, Mitch. What was that? So basically the, the president of the Senate who will be key to any potential uh, package of legislation that would send any public dollars to, to the teams. He wants the Bears and the White Sox to come together and formulate one proposal basically make one ask as opposed to mm. this Hunger Games that we're talking about where the Bears are trying to get money uh, kind of in competition with the White Sox. Talking with uh, some staffers in Don Harmon's office and just some other folks in Springfield last week at Governor Pritzker's budget address, I think there's a sense of frustration among lawmakers that certainly the White Sox and to a lesser extent the Bears, they've kind of rolled out this massive PR blitz at one time kind of trying to manufacture the sense of momentum without any actual tangible proposal being run by lawmakers. I, so I think, you know, this is really Don Harmon trying to step in and say, hey, guys, before we try and show all these fancy renderings and everything, yeah. put some numbers on paper and let's actually discuss this. I mean, and, and could we see the, the McCaskies and, and Jerry Reinsdorf collaborating on like what's in the best interest of the city? 
and the taxpayers. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly. There's a thought. Yeah, and, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf is capable of playing nice. I mean, he's the co-owner of the United Center, you know, so he was able to, you know, develop the new United Center back in the 90s along yeah, with point. the Blackhawks organization. But, you know, one of the, the ideas that's been floated that our, you know, our state politics uh, reporter, Amanda Vinicky, brought up the other day was that, well, maybe this is just Reinsdorf, you know, who's talked for years about moving the White Sox to Nashville. Maybe this is just his way of saying, okay, well, you know what? I tried. This was my last pitch and I threw this idea out there and, you know, the General Assembly didn't go for it. And okay, you know, when, when our lease is up at Sox Park, we're, we're picking up and we're moving out of town. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's very difficult for someone with a multi-billion dollar net worth to come to the General Assembly and say, hey, can you help us build a new stadium? Especially when we haven't finished paying off guaranteed rate field. So that's something, you know, it's like, we're not, we're not done with that. And There's that's, that. you know, what, 30 years old at this mm -hmm. point? For the last stadium that he wanted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we touched on this earlier, Christian, but how about Red Stars owner, Laura Ricketts, throwing women's soccer into this mix, right? And basically saying women want a seat at the table for public funding too. Well, I mean, football and baseball aren't the only games in town. Well, right. And I mean, pro professional women's sports has, you know, risen so much. I mean, we had the Chicago Sky win here a couple of years ago, which was significant for the city. And, you know, we, we got to celebrate since, uh, you know, the Bulls haven't <laughs> won a championship <laughs> since 98. <98. laughs> Jordan was on the Leave team. Leave them alone. They'll be back <laughs> next season. Uh, Will they? Okay, I'm Stop just, you know, I, look, I'm a, I'm a Bulls fan who grew up on the East Coast, so I, I, I love I love my There will Chicago be no Bulls. Bulls slander in here. <laughs> I will not slander the Bulls at all. But again, it comes right back to everybody wanting to get into the conversation and see what kind of funds can we have because, I mean, these are revenue generators for the city. And But if you can get that team into the city of Chicago, it's going to become much more of a powerful team, you know, along with the Chicago Fire and the Bulls, yeah. the Bears, mm -hmm. the, you know, the Cubs. I mean, this is a sports town. Um, people come here just to come see the Jordan statue, come to see Wrigley Field. That's true. Um, you know, and, and there are a bunch of White Sox fans, even though they get disrespected quite a bit, you know, and they've won championships, you know. Again, I just don't know how this is going to end up. I, I think another sports team is going <laughs> to... The, the Bulls might be talking. Swipe, to, yeah, right, <laughs> swipe the know? whole thing. They needed a practice facility at one point, you know, the Blackhawks. I know. So I think everybody wants to be a part of that conversation. All right. Well, Nick, let's jump to another controversy uh, about how taxpayer dollars are, are being spent. Uh, what's the latest on the city's contract with the gunshot detection tool called ShotSpotter? Well, Mayor Brandon Johnson and his administration, it came right down to the wire whether they were going to renew the contract for this technology. Uh, you know, ShotSpotter places, you know, uh, microphones uh, in different neighborhoods that have seen high rates of, of shootings, mostly on the south and west sides. It's gotten a lot of pushback. It's been a you know a pretty controversial program, both you know because people say this is sort of creating a surveillance state. This is concentrated in neighborhoods that already face you know a lot of racial discrimination over policing, but also because folks say this thing doesn't work. It doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a lot of question you know, and, and Mayor Brandon Johnson campaigned saying this is not effective. I don't think this is something that we need. I don't think this is something that should be in neighborhoods. And then really, really waited until the very last minute to make a decision about this, where it ultimately shook out. They said it was going to be extended through September 22nd. Now come to find out it's actually going to be extended through November 22nd because there will be a two-month uh, transition period. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, Mayor Lightfoot had negotiated an extension uh, last year that the, you know, Mayor Johnson was sort of, you know, hamstrung on. He had to execute on that. So there was $4.4 million from that extension that was budgeted but not spent. On top of that, we're going to have to put forth another $4.2 million. So we're at $8.6 million that taxpayers are going to be spending for about a nine-month extension of this system. It'll be $53 million in total since this system first came in in 2018. Wow, that's a lot of money. Ka-ching. yeah. That's a lot of money. Uh, let's turn to another issue involving Chicago police, Christian. This one involves seven men who were wrongly convicted, and all of their cases are tied to one former detective. Yeah, this is a former disgrace now, Chicago police detective, Reynaldo Guevara. These cases have been going on for a long period of time, but these are seven men who collectively served nearly 114 years in prison after being wrongfully convicted. Some of them convicted at the age of 15 and spent, you know, more than 20 years behind bars. So all of them want their convictions overturned. And so there was a press conference with the Exoneration Project here in Chicago that's been very busy over the last several years in t- overturning a lot of these cases. And so this is uh, Gorvara, uh, like Burge, um, was... Uh, you know, taking these uh, young men and framing them for murders that they did not commit. And then evidence wouldn't come out until many years later um, that they did not do this. But really, the stigma is still there. They still feel like they're in prison because it's very tough for them to get housing, very tough for them to get jobs because they still have this on their record because they were let out for a variety of reasons. And so they are looking for their convictions to be overturned. All seven are going to go to court on March 20th. Their hopes are that the Fox administration, which is still in place for now Mm -hmm. until she steps down, um, will do the right thing and overturn these convictions in a couple of days and not wait years. Um, But we just have to wait and see what happens because they handle all of these cases individually. And it's true. These are individual cases. Um, There may be different levels of guilt or innocence uh, in these cases. Um, But these men want their lives back so that they can uh, move on. Some of them are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s. And so they've been stripped of having families. Um, They... And one man told me a story where he went on vacation to Punta Cana and he saw the the bars on the patio mm-hmm. of his hotel and it brought him right back to being in prison. And mm. so th- oh, wow. th- th- there's a lot of stress. The, one of the things they even said is that I wish they would give us all some sort of mental health for free, you know, counseling so that we can deal with this. Um, because, again, um, they received life sentences. And in many cases, you don't get education. You just have to sit there and languish, you know, behind bars. All right, Nick, CTA President Dorval Carter was in the hot seat (laughs) at city council this week answering tough questions from aldermen and transit riders. <laughs> Let's put you in the hot seat. <laughs> How about that? What did Dorval Carter have to say? Well, he said that 2023 was a productive year. They've been, you know, really going gangbusters, trying to hire and train new bus operators. He did point out, which the numbers back up, that trying to hire new train operators is really where they've been struggling, but they're hoping mm. to have, you know, a couple hundred new folks in rail operations this year. Did he say why? Year. It's part of it is that there's a pathway where they have to become what's known as a flagger first. So they're basically working on the tracks, overseeing safety of crews. You can't get hired directly as a train operator. Got it. Um, but, you know, a lot of this is down to, you know, the Great Recession, the difficulties that a lot of industries have had in hiring. Other public transit agencies have had these struggles, too. But advocates say, you know, the CTA has not been out front enough in trying to get ahead of resignations mm-hmm. and retirements. So they've been kind of caught and 
and not being able to run as many buses and trains as they may have scheduled. Although Carter also said that, you know, they're they're running 90 to 100 percent of scheduled bus and train runs most days. The catch there is that they're not running. You know, they don't have as many scheduled runs as mm-hmm. they once did. They adjusted their schedules a couple of years back to reflect what they could actually provide with current staffing levels. Yeah. But he heard from a lot of older people and yes. passengers. I mean, we've been hearing for a very long time, but right now I'm seeing especially venting online from folks about long wait times for the buses, long wait times for the L. Did he address that? Specifically, He did. I mean, he said a lot of it is down to this staffing crunch and to lingering effects of the pandemic. He said, you know, nobody had a roadmap for how we get through this. But a lot of the advocates that have been really, uh, you know, working in this space the last couple of years, they've said, listen, the CTA is not providing the level of transparency that they want to see. You know, they may come out and say, okay, well, here's our hiring data. Here's our data on schedules and reliability. You know, these are, these are what the numbers show. But they're not, they're not really showing their homework. Mm. They're not providing this information and you know they're coming out and kind of having these sparring matches with you know transit uh, advocates all these different folks in this space that really do a lot of analysis that are really passionate about this issue so there's been a a fair bit of back and forth carter actually got a a bit testy at one point in in the hearing and said you know i i I dare say we know our system better than some of the people that criticize us which you know maybe on a macro level and an expertise level is true but if you're waiting 30 minutes for a brown line train or if you're waiting you know, 25 minutes for a Jeffrey Jump bus that's supposed to be coming like that. Yeah, you probably think you know the system pretty darn well, too. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Uh, Well, on the same topic of CTA, you covered a a tragic story, though, Christian. This involved a a CTA bus and a child. Yeah, this was in the South Chicago neighborhood. It was a child my daughter's age, 11 years old, Mm -hmm. on one of those electric scooters that just seemed to be dotting all over the city. People just dropped them and rent them. And so she was on one of those electric scooters. And unfortunately, a witness had told us that um, they think she was just in the street at the wrong time. And that bus hit her. So she was initially taken with some life-threatening injuries. I don't know the latest on how she is, but she was in critical condition. I heard she was hopefully going to be able to pull through. Mm. Her mother was out there at the time. I mean, just a really tragic scene. Um, And, you know, people had a lot of concerns about these electric scooters when they first came out. And um, But she... I saw three or four of them when I was out there Monday night. and In the same area. In the same area, and then saw a bunch of kids riding one, like two kids mm-hmm. on one scooter. It just as you're like reporting a, on a child who just got hit by one. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's just, um, it raises a lot of questions, and people had a lot of concerns for those scooters. But again, another revenue generator, just like the Divi bikes in the city, making it more easy to get around the city than just having to use um, public transportation, just another element of it, but um, just shows the dangers of what can happen out there. Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth made headlines this week reacting to the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling on frozen embryos. Mitch, fill us in. So quite a remarkable ruling from that uh, Supreme Court in Alabama this week, uh, which essentially ruled that frozen embryos uh, for in vitro fertilization uh, can be considered uh, children, um, as in, you know, live people, uh, which 
really set off kind of a, a panic within the industry uh, among folks who are trying to conceive that way because clinics that offer this, uh, at least in Alabama and you know other states where this might become a, a possibility, they could be held liable for wrongful death cases uh, in the case you know where an embryo is destroyed. Mm-hmm. So Senator Duckworth, who actually had, she has two daughters who uh, were both uh, conceived through IVF. Uh, this is uh, an issue that's really important for her that she's talked a lot about even before this controversy kind of bubbled up this week. Um, she actually introduced legislation in Congress to protect IVF providers from being held liable in cases that could pop up like, like we're seeing in Alabama now. That legislation was blocked by a, another conservative senator from Mississippi. So she's really trying to, she's really calling out other Republicans uh, to sort of stand up for IVF and protect mm. those clinics. This really just adds to sort of the nationwide discourse on abortion that we've been having since Roe v. Wade was overturned last year. Although there's kind of an interesting wrinkle uh, when it comes to IVF, former President Donald Trump openly stated that he wants to defend IVF hmm. and clinics that provide it. So it, it's kind of an interesting way to see how this is going to develop over the, the weeks ahead. Yeah, and Governor Pritzker said that Illinois, which we know has become this safe haven for abortion, that uh, Illinois would stand ready to help those who want to do IVF. Do we have any details on what exactly he means by that? Like you said, Illinois has really become almost a destination for, for folks seeking abortions. Uh, you know, we're surrounded by states where it's been uh, deeply restricted. Um, and the state has seen thousands of additional patients uh, in the months since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And, you know, the state does have a lot of protections for IVF and, um, you know, just increasing access to it. And I think that's going to be a major topic in the next couple months as legislators are in Springfield uh, trying to find ways to make Illinois more of a destination for IVF. The governor was at an event yesterday where he was openly cheerleading for folks who are trying to start a family through IVF to, to come to Illinois. And, you know, there are certain credits for folks who are seeking coverage for IVF in Illinois. And I think we're going to see some lawmakers introduce new measures. One measure would require insurers to cover expenses uh, for fertility preservation and follow-up services for any patient. As it stands now, uh, folks need to be diagnosed with infertility to be eligible for that. I think they'd be looking for other ways just to make it more accessible for more people without insurance companies sort of being involved. Yeah. Another interesting part of the conversation, Democratic State Representative Kelly Cassidy has introduced legislation that would give a $500 tax credit to people and healthcare providers fleeing states that limit access to abortion or gender-affirming care. I mean, could you see that legislation passing, Nick? Certainly with the climate and the makeup of the General Assembly right now, I, I can imagine that will have some pretty broad-based support, especially, as Mitch says, as Illinois has tried to position itself, you know, both in terms of imaging and in terms of some of these more practical, tangible measures as a place where people who are seeking these kinds of services should feel welcome, you know, with more conservative states ringing us around the, the Midwest, you know, I think Illinois wants to show itself as a place that people can come and, and seek that kind of care should they, you know, should they want it. And, you know, to your point about former President Trump coming out in favor of IVF, I thought that was really interesting. And I think it'll be really interesting to see whether other Republicans at a national level follow his lead as they have tended to do over the last, you know, yeah. nearly decade. Well, you know, speaking of which, Nick, some of our neighbors in Indiana are criticizing the decision from a, a federal appeals court in Chicago 
on gender-affirming care. Give us details. That's right. Last year, there was a law set to go into effect in Indiana that would have banned gender-affirming surgeries. It would mm-hmm. have banned a hormone therapy and you know puberty blockers, things like that. And it also would have prevented coordinating treatment with out-of-state medical providers in places that were more friendly to gender-affirming care. That was put on hold in uh, June of last year by a federal judge, interestingly by a Trump appointee. There were some oral arguments earlier this month before a three-judge panel of the Seventh Circuit, and that was really just sort of on the merits of the case. I was reading an, an analysis of this from uh, Chris Geidner, who's a you know a, a lawyer and a law journalist, and he said the thing that was strange is that they came out and they they lifted the preliminary injunction that the judge put into place, but that wasn't what Indiana actually wanted to do. They were just kind of arguing the merits of mm. this case. So it seemed that at least two of the three judges on this you know Seventh Circuit appeals court panel felt strongly enough about the you know constitutionality and the value of this law that they said, no, we're, we're not even waiting for a full order. We're going to lift this preliminary injunction, which meant that overnight, uh, you know, families of transgender youth and, and those young people themselves are no longer able to access uh, that sort of hormone treatment. Yeah, in a written statement Tuesday, ACLU of Indiana called the appeals court's ruling heartbreaking for, for transgender youth, their doctors and, and families. Uh, switching to something very different, though, Christian, a, a white supremacist group, they've been leaving anti-Semitic flyers in Bucktown. What's yeah. going on? Yeah, the Anti-Defamation League is involved in this. This is a noted uh, hate group that left these flyers all over uh, Bucktown. Residents found them there, reported it to police, also to uh, the local aldermen as well. And this just goes along with a string of these events that have been happening over the past uh, several months uh, since what happened in October uh, with Hamas um, and Israel. And uh, so we've been seeing this pop up quite a bit. It also happened in Evanston, this same noted hate group um, decided to go in there during the public comment section and um, just have some really hateful speech. Of course, Evanston, uh, where I live, um, has a huge uh, Jewish population with Skokie being right next door as well. So they actually had to edit that that public comment out of the meeting because the hate speech was so, so bad. The mayor putting out a statement after that, um, just uh, railing against this as well. But I'm not certain we're going to see this go away anytime soon. I Back in November, I believe I covered a story somewhere mm-hmm. on the north side, uh, which was the same thing. It was a lot of anti-Semitic flyers being left on cars, on people's doors. It's just hate speech that's not needed, and that's what, pretty much what everybody is saying. Yeah. And Nick, the Art Institute made headlines this week, too, but it wasn't because of any blockbuster exhibit. So tell us why they were in the news. Well, the Art Institute has been accused by Manhattan prosecutors of uh, hanging on to an artwork by uh, an Austrian expressionist uh, that was looted by the Nazis. Uh, This is a work that dates back to uh, 1916. It had fallen into the hands of, uh, you know, a cabaret performer who was in 1938 sent to the Dachau concentration camp. He had several uh, pieces of artwork by this uh, by this artist, Egon Schiele, and the, the Nazis took them. They sent him to the camp. He, he died there uh, three years later. His descendants uh, have been trying to get that artwork back, and there, are, there have been several institutions, including MoMA in New York, that have returned uh, pieces of art by uh, this painter, and there are uh, three right now, including the Art Institute, that are still being accused of hanging on to this. Now, the Art Institute says, we obtained this legally. They've had it since 1966. Mm-hmm. 
politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we know the provenance of this. This is this was legally obtained, uh, but there have been a lot of questions raised. It was a really lengthy court filing um, it, by the the Manhattan uh, DA's office saying. There were a lot of forged documents. You did not ask the right questions. It was something like, you know, they got it in 66. They didn't really start asking tough questions until 2002. Uh, So it seems like this may be an instance where the Art Institute, as other, you know, museums and cultural institutions have had to do, are going to be forced uh, to give back this uh, allegedly looted artwork. Interesting. All right. Time now to get to a story that consumed many of our minds this week. I'm talking about that weather (laughs) whiplash. What was that? It was in honor of Tom Skilling's last week. We had to do some. <laughs> the weather had to get weird. Isn't that oh. hilarious that Tom Skilling's last week? His this last happens. week, it's just chaotic. I mean, did anybody hear hail on Tuesday night? I, I didn't. I didn't hear hail where I was. Yeah. Um, but, you know, of course, I took the dog for a walk, you know, during that 75 degree <laughs> weather. Everybody else was walking their dogs as well. In shorts and yes. shirts? In shorts yeah. and t- I wasn't. Uh, I just, I can't do that. Sure, I'm sorry. Christian. No, it wasn't me. I'm sorry. <laughs> but then the next day, you know, you're covering t- tornadoes that touch down 11 of them and... You know, it was just unbelievable to yeah, see. Yeah, I mean, and the you've damage. been covering this this yes. week, Christian. I mean, w- what did you learn about just how everything's changing and, and why? Yeah, I, I, I wish I learned a whole lot, but when <laughs> I got to Mundelein, I'm thinking, why is this only this one building have damage and everything else looks pristine? Um, and you know, National Weather Service was out there, and within a couple of hours of them visiting. EF1 tornado that it had touched down yeah. uh, in that area and then to know that it was 11 others and we're talking about February you know I'm just I'm scratching my head and uh, I'm from the east coast where I didn't have any tornadoes <laughs> up until when I left then all of a sudden a tornado touches down when I leave and yeah. I'm thinking Something's going on. Yeah, I have zero change? tornado I experience. You know, yeah. Oh, I grew up here, so I hear the sirens, and I'm like, eh, should I go in the basement? Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, my yeah, first siren was in Chicago. Like, <laughs> yeah. thanks, guys. <laughs> what we a, wanted you to feel welcome. What a welcome. Yes. Uh, yeah, but it's it's been a lot. Uh, it's also been making a lot of people around me sick, too. Oh, yeah. So, you know, just the, the constant change in temperatures. I have teens who don't know how to dress when they go to school. One day I'm seeing crop tops, then it's a coat. I'm like, what's going on? Um, Yeah, NBC5 had video of uh, massive amounts of people at O'Hare as well uh, that were uh, forced to seek shelter. Yeah, they were all down in the, you know, down in the lower levels. I mean, just all packed in there like sardines. It was just unbelievable with the, you know, the announcements going off saying, you know, we've got tornadoes in the area, hail. There was a ground stoppage as well. Yeah. Um, You know, it's... Uh, it's Chicago. This the is they're saying weather. this was the uh, we set the record for the warmest February ever. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it. No. <laughs> well, it. it is supposed to be in the mid 60s on Sunday, so that will hopefully make it easier for Mayor Johnson and the 5,000 people who are expected <laughs> to take the polar plunge. Yeah, I don't think that counts if it's in the yeah, 60s. Yeah, I don't think it counts either. Like that's like doing it in May. Like, yeah. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they happen to luck out, right? But uh, I mean, they're raising money for a good cause. It's for the Special Olympics, right? That's yeah. dedication. And yes. The, and the lake's not going to be warm, so let's just <laughs> let's, let's, make, very good let's point. make this clear. It's not going to be warm. Very good point. So. That is dedication for a good cause. All right, we'll leave it there. By thanks to NBC5 Chicago's Christian Farr, Nick Blumberg of WTTW News, and Mitch Armantrout of the Chicago Sun-Times. Enjoy your weekend. I don't know how to say Stay warm? Stay cold? I don't know. <laughs> just stay. Just stay. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Andrea Guffman, edited by Meha Ahmed, and mixed by Brenda Ruiz. 
If you're still listening, well, that means you really cannot get enough of Reset. Now, if that's true, well, consider signing up for our daily newsletter. Every weekday at 1030, we offer news explainers, Chicago culture, and recommendations on things to do around the city. You can sign up for that at wbez.org slash Reset News. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.